Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Welcome back to Anonymous Was A Woman. My name is Jamila Rispy and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. Astrid, I am in awe of you and today that's exactly what we're going to talk about. <laughs> that is uh, a high compliment and lovely praise coming from you, Jam. Why did you choose the topic of awe? There are a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, the world is something I'm in awe of this year, but not in a good way. And I wanted to explore the positivity of awe. And I think the idea of finding the world to be a wondrously good or bad place is something that's at the front of my mind right now. And while 2020 seems to keep insisting that I see the world as a scary kind of awful place, I want to take that awe and transplant it and find some hope and some wondrous happy things. How did you interpret awe? Because it is a bit of a wild card, this topic. It is a wild card. I went to the same place as you. For me, the word awe, it's a positive word. It's wonder. It's a gateway into something else. Like it's not necessarily the everyday, although it can be. It's things that give me a a feeling of reverence. Well, books give me a feeling of reverence and I know that you do too. And we've got two magnificent books to explore and unpack today. And later this week, we will be speaking to Kate Richards, the author of Madness, a memoir. Astrid, let's get started. Astrid, I'd like to begin by talking about phosphorescence on awe, wonder and the things that sustain us when the world goes dark by Dr. Julia Baird. Have you read it? I have only recently read this work and I am pretty disappointed that I didn't pick it up earlier. I thought you were about to say you're disappointed in the book and I was going to have to yell at you. I am delighted you enjoyed it. Most people will know Julia Baird from television and from writing. She writes for the New York Times, for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and she is the host of ABC TV's The Drum. She's someone who I think we usually associate with smart, considered opinion, but opinion that brings the facts to the fore. And this book is, I think, a real departure in subject matter from what she's written about in the past and yet in style there are some things that I think are quite similar. I have to confess I am not overly familiar with Julia's work. I recognise her name, I have read her pieces in the New York Times which I am pretty much addicted to but I didn't know her work very well so I was absolutely delighted when on the first page of this book Julia is talking about glowworms and vampire squid but also Aristotle and I just never thought I would see such different things together on the one page and the whole book is like that but done with such craft and depth and just it's just lovely. I think it's important to know the background to this book. Baird was diagnosed with a really rare kind of abdominal cancer in 2015 and it's come back a number of times. She's had, I think, three now really horrible surgeries and a bunch of chemotherapy. So she's had an incredibly difficult five years. And during those five years, she said she needed to write 
to kind of process what had happened, but she didn't want to write another memoir about what happens when you get sick, not because she doesn't think that genre is important, but because she thinks others have done that really well. And she wanted to explore something a little bit different. So for those who haven't read it, let me try and give a bit of context to phosphorescence. It's a very hard book to sum up. It's not a self-help book. It's not a memoir. It is a search for lightness and grace and wonder in the world. And that sounds so Pollyanna, but Baird is not Pollyanna at all. So she looks at the idea of phosphorescence, which is the process by which energy is absorbed into something and then released really slowly in the form of light. I had to look up the scientific definition, but that's the best I've got, folks. And she kind of uses this idea and as an analogy for different elements of life. So she looks at it and applies this idea of absorbing energy and then emitting it as a slow, sustaining light. And she uses that in terms of thinking about climate change and friendships and family and illness and all sorts of other things. It's about making sense of life, I suppose. (laughs) I'm also a sick person and I have fallen in and out of love with books that deal with illness. And I found it illuminating to read phosphorescence and consider illness in a different way, not a heavy way, not a disastrous way, whilst noting how painful and lonely and isolating illness can be. But what I will remember from this book is the way Julia shows respect for and demonstrates her own faith, but she also shows respect for science and medicine and fact and also a deep love for our world and our environment and all the flora and fauna that we live with and that we are losing. And throughout everything, starting with glowworms and Aristotle, on every single page there is a reverence for different times, different places, different viewpoints, different cultures, different research. And she brings it all together and it leaves me a feeling of reverence for a mind that can encompass and welcome so many different ideas. Mm, You're right. This is the sort of book I think normally you and I, Astrid, if this was written by a lesser author, we would have dismissed it as woo-woo. Like it wouldn't be the kind of book we bring to this podcast. But Baird puts so much research and so much science underpinning everything she explores. She's not saying, behold, the sunset. You know what I mean? She's talking about why a sunset is what a sunset is. She looks at shirinyuko, which is Japanese word for forest bathing, and talks about the benefits to health and particularly to mental health and healing of going for a walk in a forest and putting down your phone and not thinking about all sorts of other things that bother us in this busy world, but just being aimless in a forest. Now, normally I'd kind of roll my eyes at that and be like, yeah, yeah, good forests. But she talks about the chemical that's released by trees and plants that's been found to boost the immune system. She showed how all these various studies, particularly those conducted by Japanese scientists that show that this activity reduces our blood pressure, it lowers our cortisol levels, it improves our memory and concentration. That scientific basis to what she's doing, I think, is part of the reason I feel in awe of the way she talks about or Absolutely. You know, uh, another thing I will take with me from this book, which is, uh, I hope you can hear the smile in my voice because it does amuse me and give me a little moment of lightness. 
moon bows. I didn't know what a moon bow was until I read this book. And for those of you who are listening, a moon bow is a rainbow that is produced by moonlight, not sunlight. Essentially, it's kind of a nighttime rainbow. And I didn't know they existed. And now I have Googled and I have seen the pictures and I just love science when someone delivers it up written so well in the way that this book does. I think something that I really took from Baird is what I can hear in your voice right now, Astrid. We live in a world that is very, very fast, where we don't take notice of nature and the world around us or even the people around us very often. But more than anything, we are made to be very self-focused. I think we live in a world where we try and build ourselves up and it's all about us. We try and make ourselves feel big. We talk about legacies and being remembered and making your mark and phrases like this. I mean, what is an Instagram account if not being entirely self-obsessed and upping yourself and making yourself bigger and taking up space in the world? And Baird's book is about the opposite. It's about finding joy in being small, in looking out at a moonbow or looking in awe at the night sky or an enormous forest or being in the sea and feeling completely immersed and not feeling irrelevant or forgotten because you're small, but recognising the joy in being small and being in awe and in wonder of the universe. And whenever I look at my little kid who's five, he's starting to lose it more and more. As he gets older, the awe decreases. Those simple joys of that's amazing just decrease a teeny tiny little amount. He's still got it in spades compared to his dad and I, but it's almost like as we watch children become adults, we stop being in awe of the magic that's around us. And this book, Julia deliberately reminds us that she is able to walk down to the water at the end of her street and if she jumps into it, there is cool stuff underneath that she can swim in and it is a different world. It is worth being inspired by. And we don't need to travel overseas or go to fancy locations or spend a lot of money to remember that the world is kind of beautiful and we can remember that we are linked to it and in it and I really need to go for a walk today, Jen. Yeah, you absolutely do. We all do, particularly us Melbourneites. Use your hour, folks. And I really recommend getting a copy of Phosphorescence. Julia Baird has done a magnificent job. And I think particularly in a moment where a lot of us are spending more time inside, more time alone, more time away from the people we love, taking a moment to delve into a world of awe and wonder and gratitude that isn't the hashtag Instagram version of gratitude is very much worth your time. Jan, this week you chose the topic of awe. And when I was thinking about books and authors that really have inspired that feeling of wonder and reverence, I remembered Arundhati Roy and what she meant to me in the years after The God of Small Things was published. Have you read The God of Small Things? I most certainly have, though I have to admit I haven't read it for many years now. I must have read it just after it came out. So it was published in 1997 and it won the Booker Prize back then. I read it in 1999. That was well before I started tracking what I read on Goodreads. But I know I read it in 1999 because I read it when I was selling books at Bray's Books in Balmain, where I had one of my first real jobs and that was my first year at university. So I can date it pretty well. And The God of Small Things, it's a novel. It was selling really well because this was before social media and it had won a major prize. So I sold this 
hundreds of times that year. I also read it that year. It was a revelation to me. I was young then, I was 18. I was a baby reader, right? And I didn't understand India's caste system. I didn't understand the politics of India or what that would mean on the day-to-day human level. So I loved the novel and I did love what it exposed me to. I think that's one of the most awe-inspiring things about books, right? They can take us to places that we may never have been or may never go. Have you been to India? I have not been to India and I don't know why. I have travelled around Asia a great deal but somehow managed to miss one of the oldest civilizations in the region. There's a global pandemic. You've got an excuse right now. But of course, my half my family anyway are Indian and one of the things that I stepped back in awe of with this book that really stuck with me for years and years after I read it, and I think I would have read it maybe 2001, 2002 kind of time, so it feels like a very long time ago. I remember the descriptions of India. I remember moments of the book where they talk about what India and what Kerala is like, the sights, the smells. There's even a line from the book that I I flicked through and I had to grab out because I remembered it. It stuck with me. And that was Rahel says, stop, uncle. There are too many names, too many things going on. I can't keep up. And Chako says, that's the whole point. This is India, a land of sensory and poetic overload, a land where small boats bob in rippling water of green silk, a land teeming with literary prizes for those who can find the right imagery to win them but these are small things. Oh, that is a good description. And India is like that. And I still, you know, if I smell turmeric, I go back to my childhood. I can smell Delhi in my mind, even though I probably won't get to go there again for many years. But I think the other thing that that passage speaks to is the awe of Aridati's writing, which is, I imagine, what drew you so much to this book. Astra, what is it about her writing that that makes it so compelling? I love Arundhati Roy's writing. I fell in love with The God of Small Things because it was a beautiful novel and I sold it many times and I just, 20-something years later, I still think it is a contribution to someone's bookshelf. But I also fell in love with her ideas and what she stands for and all of the nonfiction that she has written. Now, the very last chapter in The God of Small Things is called The Cost of Living. Now, two years later, after this book was published in 1999, when I was selling all of these books, She actually published a really short collection of essays, so only two essays in it. I guess polemic is almost more what the collection was, and that was also called The Cost of Living. Now, these two essays, one on India's nuclear capacity and one on the Megadam projects that have been built all around India, they actually changed the course of my university studies. I was at university in 1999, and I was studying international relations and politics, as you probably did too in Canberra, and there was a new Canadian lecturer and everybody thought he was a bit weird and strange and it was an elective about environmental politics. But I read The Cost of Living by Aaron Duddy Roy and I realised that that's what I needed to do. So I was one of the first people at Sydney University to study environmental politics as it existed in the late 90s. And I still thank Aaron Duddy Roy for that because I went on to spend almost a decade as an economics and policy consultant specialising in climate policy and the environment. And I think she changed my life and she continues to write. She continues to advocate for environmental justice and human rights and does it with such poetic, beautiful language that I owe Arundhati Roy a debt. And I think everybody should read her. I think that's a beautiful reflection on how books really can change a life. 
Astrid, it is recommendations time and I am just so excited to hear your recommendations on the subject of awe because it's something I think we all need a little bit more of in our lives this year. And I want to start with a call out to everyone listening. Please send us your recommendations on awe. We need more of this. We can't just have Astrid and myself contributing. Astrid, we are going to start with you and I believe you're going to recommend some poetry. I am going to recommend poetry. And the reason is in our episode last week, we both kind of made jokes that, you know, you weren't very good at poetry and I wasn't very good at poetry. And I thought I'm not, but increasingly over the last two years, I have been picking up more poetry voluntarily, not because it's on my school curriculum. I, you know, have to write an essay on it, but because poetry can be light and beautiful and poetry can put into very few words, those really big feelings that you might otherwise have to read a whole darn book to get, right? That is the beauty of poetry. So as an older reader, I am falling in love with poetry again, and I really want to recommend all of the poetry by Ali Cobby Eckerman, but particularly Ruby Moonlight. Have you heard of Ruby Moonlight? You know, I have to say that I haven't. I'm not a big poetry reader. Tell me more. Ruby Moonlight is a love story. It is the story of Ruby, but Ruby Moonlight is also sometimes described as a massacre verse novel because Ruby Moonlight is a poem, a long form poem exploring the impact of colonization in Australia around about 150 years ago. And what is it about this collection of poetry that inspires awe? There are really serious topics covered here, but it is done so compassionately and so lightly that you can feel to the depths of your bones the horror that has happened, but also you can be fully invested in this love story and the new options and choices that Ruby has come into her life. The poems are very, very short. The The stanzas are very, very brief and it's a very slim collection. I mean, you might be able to get through this in an hour or two if you read from start to finish. And I read it and Ruby Moonlight has stuck with me and it makes me reflect on our history but it's a love story still so this is not some kind of academic text where you're forced to look at dates and and numbers this is human and I love it. So Jam I've now brought back in a love story and poetry which I am not known for doing. What do you want to share with us this week? I want to share a book that is all about death which is as unusual for me (laughs) as love stories are for you, I reckon. (laughs) I want to recommend When Breath Becomes Air by Dr. Paul Kalanithi. It is a memoir. You've probably seen it around on bookshelves. It's got quite an arresting cover. It's got the picture of the back of a surgeon's head. And Paul was a doctor and he was a surgeon who, when he was diagnosed with lung cancer, had an understanding of what awaited him and what might happen to him that most of us don't. Most of us put our faith and our lives in the hands of doctors without a full picture of what they do and don't know. And a lot of us think about doctors as gods or at least godlike when really they're human beings like the rest of us and there is firm limits to what they do and don't know and what they can and cannot do for us. And in this book, 
I think the only thing I can say is the author learns to die with the same grace that he lived. And I think that is something I'm incredibly in awe of. And I'm someone who prior to the last few years hasn't been willing to confront the idea of my own mortality or even the mortality of most of the people I know and love. And this book helps you confront your mortality, think about death, and I would hope talk about death after reading it in a way that will make living more meaningful and maybe even loving more deep. it It is an extraordinary book. Thank you for recommending it, Jem. I have circled this book many times and I I know full well where it is on my bookshelf and I haven't picked it up yet and I think it's about time I did. That's about all we've got time for today but please join us on Thursday when Astrid and I will be speaking to author Kate Richards about Madness, a memoir. We've spoken today about books that are about feelings of awe and writing that we are in awe of. And Kate's writing certainly fits that bill. Her memoir is extraordinary and she is a really deep, delicate and intelligent thinker. And you've got a really special treat ahead of you. We'll talk to you then. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss Kate Richards and you don't want to miss any episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you should rate and review us with awe and wonder and maybe give us five stars.